This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This is Ahmed Zappa. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology, the fucking best show there is. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic in the home studio today of San Francisco. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. If you'd like to help out the RNRA, please head over to our brand new website and click on the Support the Shows tab. You can click from there to our Patreon page and make a much appreciated donation. Or if you'd like to pick up some awesome rock and roll archaeology swag, click to our T public link. That's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Thank you. Your McCalkinen is best known as a founding member of Jefferson Airplane. Uh, kind of a fun fact, it was Yorma who came up with the name. Airplane's second album, Surrealistic Pillow, uh, that's the one with White Rabbit and Somebody to Love on it, that album put them on the map and made them the first band to bust out of the San Francisco psychedelic scene. That was in 1966, about a year ahead of the Summer of Love. For the next few years, Yorma did the big-time rock star thing, touring and recording with the airplane. In 1969, along with airplane bassist Jack Cassidy, he started a new band, the psychedelic cosmic jam meisters Hot Tuna. Hot Tuna has been an on-again, off-again project for Yorma and Jack ever since, and we love them. They've made some nice records over the years, and they're just great live. Yorma Kalkinen is a bit of a guitar purist. He plays Piedmont style, a blues finger-picking technique that sounds gorgeous and is hard as hell to do. 
Yorma's finger-style plane and Jack Casty's melodic thrumming bass are a great blend. It's ragtime and jazz and blues and other strains of Americana all mashed up together with a generous dash of rock and roll thrown in. Between the airplane, Hot Tuna, and his solo releases, Yorma's now 50-plus years as a recording artist. He's slowed down a bit in recent years, but Yorma's one of those road warrior musicians. He's been touring and playing out regularly for decades. I had a chance to talk with Yorma about his wanderlust. He grew up the son of an American diplomat, so the travel bug hit him real early on. And he's been a globetrotter ever since. And of course, we'll get into his new book, Been So Long, My Life and Music. Lots to unpack there. So let's get to an interesting and wide-ranging discussion with one of the original West Coast rockers. I give you the great Yorma Kalkinen. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Yorma Kalkinen. How are you today? I'm really well. Thanks for thanks for giving a darn. <laughs> of course, of course. You know, you're uh, one of our favorite guitar players. You know, I, I guess I really got to say uh, start by by saying that uh, I, I play in a, a classic rock band uh, myself. Uh, it's been around for 13 years. And uh, last night we were at rehearsal and I, I, I told everybody, hey, you know, I'm going to speak to Yorma tomorrow. And my guitar player says, oh, my God, tell him that I saw him in 1965 with their original lead singer. So that's how old we're all talking about here. Well, that's that sounds good to me. I'm all about surviving. Survive is a good thing. That's right. That's right. And you have. You have survived. So first question, why write a book at this stage in your career in life? Um, is that part of the title, Been So Long? Well, that, you know, that's, that's the title of one of my songs. But but here's the, here's the simple, true, true answer. Uh, I, I've sort of kept diaries all my life. I just like to do that. And I sort of had a blog before the word blog happened. Right. Uh, they, we weren't archiving back then, so they sort of just came and went. And I've been blogging for a long time. So... I had all this stuff. I was comfortable. I was comfortable for the most part writing. Now, some of my blogs are more interesting than others. Sometimes it's just like, you know, I went to San Francisco. We played the film Warriors, the Settlers. And sometimes something happens that like sets me on fire. Anyway, so about three years ago, well, actually about a decade or so ago, I, my wife were talking, do you ever think about writing a book? No, not really, blah, blah, blah. So, but maybe. So we, we, we started talking to some people and pitched some ideas. And back in the mid to mid to early 2000s, I realized that the people we were talking to were only interested in me telling stories in addition to dirt on people that were more famous than myself. And I wasn't interested in doing that. So I just put it, put it aside. Right. So anyway, so a couple of years ago, uh, we had met some people from St. Martin's Press and they were interested in doing this thing. And and I, uh, you know, I sort of waffled about it, but but my wife made the deal, 
and we got an advance. And once I got the advance, I had to write the book. <laughs> you were committed. <laughs> right. I was, but you know, and, and so I kind of had to get, I mean, I wasn't kicking and screaming. I just, I didn't feel there was that book bursting to get out of me. But I'll tell you that when I started writing in the first place, um, I kind of waited for the inspiration, the moment to hit me, like I sort of do with my blogs that are more interesting than others. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I'd be waiting a long time to finish a book if that's how I did it. I made the process of the writing be the inspiration. And once I did that, I'm not saying it was easy because I still, you know, I'm a lazy, I'm a lazy bastard, you know, and I need to be kicked in the butt to do stuff. But once I sat down to write, I could sit down, I could write 25 pages. And I went, wow, okay. Really? Just so. So it's just the discipline, getting into the the discipline of actually writing. It was the discipline of getting into the discipline without realizing that it was discipline. (laughs) Right. Otherwise, you never would have done it, right? Probably not. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a little bit like your how you came about came about with the guitar so so now you grew up a little privileged uh tell us about growing up uh, with a diplomatic father and seeing the world uh with young eyes you know that's really interesting that you should say you're growing up privileged because nobody said that before but you're right and and i wasn't privileged in the sense that my family was wealthy because we were just like you know middle class white color workers but there is no question that i grew up as a in a privileged world for a lot of reasons, you know, because uh, my dad was a diplomat and and you couldn't get arrested and all that kind of stuff that makes teenage life exciting but not dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, I got to travel around a lot. I mean, and that's just how it was. Um, yeah. First, I noticed, first Pakistan, right? Yeah, that was that was my dad's first. So now my dad was overseas most of the time before that. That I started to see. He, I was around him more than I'd ever had been before when we went to Pakistan in 1953 because he was in the service before that and then he was in Korea for a long time. Mm-hmm. But so, but what I realized was is that once you get into that world, people like like me and my family and the people we hung out with and stuff like that, that's just what, what they did. I mean, to be honest with you, um, I really never knew what it was like to to go to the same you know, elementary school, middle school, and high school. Because we'd move every year and a half, every three years, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you had no uh, rock of uh, Washington, D.C., because when, no. when I guess when your dad wasn't, uh, or you weren't with your dad, uh, right. you, you grew up the rest in, in D.C., right? Yeah. yeah. Now, my, I have a 20-year-old son that lives in the D.C. area, and he is going to college there, and he's, I mean, he's, he's never lived anywhere else. Now, he loves to travel, not that he doesn't like to travel, but his buddies in college are the kids he went to kindergarten with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's had that stability uh, in right. his life that you did But I didn't have that. Mine was different. Yeah. So now in, in the book, I, I do want you to talk a little bit about the family trip you took to Finland. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I realized o- over the years and one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, in a normal world, I'd be a great grandfather, but in this one, I've got younger kids. And one of the things that I keep telling, especially my daughter who's 12 is, we're your parents and you need to, and you're at an age where you need to do what we tell you to do. But 
you need to look at your at some point you're going to look at your parents and realize that we're just folks like everybody else and sometimes we make good decisions sometimes we don't so when i look back on this you know that trip to finland uh in retrospect i realized that my dad growing up because he as a guy whose first language even though he was born in the united states wasn't english it was really important that he be what he considered to be an american and so he kind of turned his back on all that old country kind of stuff really until late ish in life and so the trip to finland was it was a powerful connection for for all of us uh a little different for me not him because he was seeing relatives he hadn't had never met before but there they were mm-hmm. for me you know because i don't have any first cousins all of a sudden i was surrounded by people i called cousins it was cool yeah i think you really kind of <clears throat> found a little bit more of who you were on that trip right Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you, you also went with a family when your father was posted to the Philippines, but by now, it seems like you're getting tired of the travel and wanting to just stay well, in the in the U.S. I, I'm not sure that I got tired of the travel because I really didn't know anything different. But I guess you could surmise that because uh, I made my parents let me come home for my senior in high school, which I guess was kind of my last... Uh, Hurrah to be with the boys in the hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> tell us about music in your house. Uh, your mom loved to sing. Uh, I think your father played violin, and uh, and you guys had a piano in the house, right? Yeah, my dad played violin and piano, and, uh, and he played the uh, recorder, and my mom loved to sing. Uh, I, I noted in the book, and it's important to note this also, that music was really important in our household but my dad did not encourage my mother to sing. And looking back on it now, he wasn't just being a dick. Because yeah. he, he could be a dick sometimes. So there's probably some of that. But he he really had this sort of like he, the categorical way he'd look at music. And and classical music was at, the, was at the, the peak of his categories. That was like the good stuff. And... At that point in our life, I don't think he really gave a lot of credibility to pop music of any sort, whether blues, gospel, whatever. You know, classical music was like, okay, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an intellectual. This is what I'm listening to, and anything else, which is what my mother liked to sing, was like, uh, you might as well be a clown in a circus. Oh, I see, I see. So now, as a teen, uh, for the birth of this music, what's your earliest memory of rock and roll? I actually have very distinct memories of that. Um, when we went over to the Philipp- uh, I mean, to Pakistan in 1953, when we left the United States, the quote-unquote pop music scene was so insipid that even though I didn't know any better, I knew it was insipid. Uh-huh. I'm not, you know, I wish I wrote how much is that doggy in the window because I'd be, I wouldn't have to work <laughs> that stuff. But, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think about when I think of the pop music of the time. I mean, some of the hippest singers are like, you know, people like Teresa Brewer, whose singing was hipper. Anyway, so we go to Pakistan, and we didn't really have uh, – I got my first 78 record, which was Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. Actually, my first record, really, was Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. And at the parties that we had with the – you know, with the Anglo-Indians and the the Americans there, the stuff was starting to trickle down from the States. And 
if you had a shortwave radio, you could listen to Radio Luxembourg and hear what was, what was beginning to evolve. Oh, pirate radio, evolve. right. I mean, like Earth Angel. Earth Angel came out. Uh-huh. Now, it was a cool song, and you could dance slow to it, so all these things came, came, came around at the same time. But when we went home, and I talk about this in the book, I remember getting on, uh, when we sailed back on the Julia Cesare, this Italian ship, Elvis had broken out while I was gone. And friends had written me about it, but I hadn't heard him yet. And when I first heard Elvis in the when it, in the disco or whatever they called that kind of thing back in those days in the boats, I remember I flipped out. It was electric, huh? Absolutely. You knew it right away. That something cool was happening. Right, right, right. And then when I got back to the States, and it had been happening for a couple of years, and my friends were so far ahead of me, it was like, this sucks. <laughs> on but on the other hand, I had a lot of cool music to catch up with, so that was good. Yeah. Now, I, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask any who was your favorite early rock and roll artist? Well, I, I've got a couple of them, but I think that I think that I think Buddy Holly was really my favorite oh, of the awesome. period. Okay. But I but I also I mean the ones that the ones that really stick out in my memory for for sort of the same reason. Ricky Nelson was great too. Because he showed us that you could be a teenage white kid and do that stuff also. Right, right. Uh, Chuck Berry. Who, who uh, also came across as, like, average guy because of the TV show. Absolutely. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, and we were, believe me, we were all, we were that guy. We were all average guys. Now, I'll admit he had a better haircut than some of us did. <laughs> so Chuck, Chuck Berry, I guess, uh but certainly was was iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny Cash, obviously. Uh, when I later on, when I got into being able to play uh, music myself, uh, Johnny Cash's music was playable to somebody that couldn't really play very well. Right. Um, so I so I liked him a lot too. But I think that you know, in those very early time periods before the guitar really burst out of it, it was probably like vocal groups, doo wop group kind of groups. But once the guitar started to to reach its ascendancy, you know, Buddy, of course, Ricky had Jim Burton playing the guitar for him. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. So when did you first pick up the guitar? I first touched the guitar when I was probably when we when we came. I think I'm trying to think about this now. I probably first touched it before we went to Pakistan. Cause my dad had a. A secretary named Dolores, who was born in Puerto Rico, and she played uh, Puerto Rican music. Mm-hmm. And I remember, because I'd been taking piano lessons, and I remember I really liked it. But, you know, you pick, you know, you're a, you play guitar, you pick up a guitar, and if you don't, I mean, you, you go to a piano, and whether you can play it or not, you can hit keys and notes come out. Yeah. But that's not how it works with a guitar. Oh, no. you got First, got to learn how to press those and strings. Guitar, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I didn't do that, but I think the seed was planted. Uh, and when we came back from uh, from Pakistan, my sophomore year of high school, before I had a driver's license, I, the, this buddy of mine had been, while I was gone, one of the other things that happened was one of my best friends learned how to play the guitar and sing. And so he taught me a couple songs and I started to play and I was that was it. I was hooked. Yeah, and uh, a lifelong venture begins. Huh? Yeah. So let me ask you about uh, somebody who came up in the book, uh, the Reverend Gary Davis. Oh, boy. Well, 
you know, that's one of those sort of grand epiphanies. Now, I'm not one of the guys that studied with the Reverend because I didn't live in the New York area. And when I was working there, when I went there on a handicap co-op job later, I didn't have whatever he charged, the three bucks a half an hour. I forget what it was he charged because the rest of the things, I was paying rent, stuff like that. But in 1960, at Antioch College, living in an off-campus house, there was this guy named Ian Buchanan. I cover this in the book, but I can't say it too much because I owe so much to him. And he was probably, he wasn't much older than me, but he was like a generation ahead of me, musically speaking. And his muse was Lonnie Johnson. Now, Lonnie Johnson was more of a jazz guitar player, and his stuff was way over my head. But he was buddies. It's not that he studied with the Reverend, but the Reverend was a friend of his. And so he learned all the, many of the Reverend's songs, and he played them for me, and I flipped out. And Ian, for whatever reason, because he was an antisocial person, he didn't hang, he didn't give guitar lessons, I don't know why he undertook to spend the time he did to teach me how to finger pick, but he did. I sort of theorized that my, my plane was so obnoxious, he did it out of self-defense. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, maybe he recognized talent. And he, and, he, and he opened all these doors for me, you know, and the, and the rest is ongoing history. So in the beginning, one of the things that I really loved about fingerstyle guitar is there was something you could do without having five friends, one of whom opened a, owned a band, which is the way it is if you play in a band. Yeah. So... I could do that solo. But the other thing was, I, I can't even really define what it was. I just fell in love with it. And the, and my gateway love affair was Reverend Gary Davis. So l l I'm going to ask a kind of a wide-ranging career question. And that is, you know, w what kept you close to roots music and not venture too far off into psychedelia right. or jazz fusion or metal or whatever genre came as you, you know, uh, progressed through the music scene over right. the years? Right. I, and that's a, that is a really good question, too, and I wish I had a really concise answer, but I think the best way that I could put it is, is that as an art form, and all the things you mentioned are art forms also. Oh, yeah. But as an art form, it just called my name and it never stopped calling. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in an era when we are have so many different styles to access in whatever learning process that we're following. But we didn't have that back then when I was a kid, you know, not just because of the internet. I mean, it's just like you caught something and I think it served me well that I was able to focus on one thing rather than to go far afield. Now, I, I knew jazz musicians and I don't know why that didn't call my name, except that maybe it was, just, it just required too much thinking for me. I mean, obviously learning anything, you know, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of practice and stuff like that. But I just related to the stories that were being told uh, in the Americana stuff that I loved. Yeah. And you still do, right? And I still do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So <clears throat> how did you and Jack Cassidy meet? Because it, it, it sounds a little like a Lennon, like the, the, the Lennon McCartney story. Sort of. Yeah, sort of. Um, so when I came back, from the from Pakistan in 1965, uh, the guy who was, taught me to play the guitar, Michael Oliveri, lived in a neighborhood, and in that neighborhood, the Cassidy family lived. 
And Jack had an older brother, a little bit older than me, and so he already had a car and a driver's license. And not only did he have a car, but he had a really cool car. He had a 1934 Ford two-door sedan, mm. which went through a lot of mutations over the years because we were all building hot rods back then. But anyway, and he had this younger brother, and the younger brother was Jack. So, Yeah, let's so, remind everybody that you're quite the gearhead as well. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. In, in fact, as, as I'm talking to you here, I'm looking out the window at the Cummins turbo diesel truck I just bought last week. I'm out of control. <laughs> I have no earthly need for a vehicle that has 555 foot-pounds of torque. Right. But I just had to have anyway. Had to have it, right. I had back to the story. <laughs> right, back to the story. Okay. So, and Jack was taking guitar lessons, and he was, and he was studying at the same place that I studied, but he was studying with Bill Harris, who was a jazz guitar player and the backup player for the Quovers. Anyhow, we got to know each other. Uh, his, his older brother, Chick, had all the uh, the Roots records, all the blues records, all the classic chess stuff and whatnot, which I found myself uh, um, more interested in. So so Jack was playing, was studying jazz guitar and doing all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was studying, I mean, I was a rank beginner. Now, as, as you pointed out, if you don't know how to play the guitar, you don't know how to play the guitar. So... I was, you know, I learned a couple songs from my friend Michael, enough to calm my dad into buying a guitar and giving me lessons. But I had to go to ground zero, so I had to learn about fretting and finger position and tuning and all that kind of stuff. Anyhow, so I just sort of pursued the stuff that I was pursuing for that year. And then my dad got posted to the Philippines, and my junior year of high school was in the Philippines, and then I calmed my folks into coming back my senior year. So when I came back, uh, Chick, Jack's older brother, I was already out of high school and he was in the service. Mm -hmm. And there was Jack. And we st we started till Jack was, I guess he was 13 then and I was 17, something like that. Uh, anyhow, so we realized that we both were nuts about the guitar. And we both realized that we knew enough so that we could actually put a band together and sing some songs. Now, I mentioned this in the book, but when I started playing and singing, my thrust to do that was not really to become a guitar player. That sort of happened accidentally. I just wanted to sing the songs. Because in our early band, our first band in 1958, Jack was the lead guitar player, and I just played rhythm and sang. Mm. And we, we realized we loved to do that. We didn't mind rehearsing because it was fun. And that's what we did. And so you guys then start playing around to, together in the, in the D.C. area, right? I can't believe that we actually got gigs. It just goes to show on some level that the passion of what we were doing got over. The and, and the low standards of professionalism at the places we were expected of. <laughs> well, we, you were young kids playing that young kid music. We were, but we were, but we were also playing in bars, and and we we got we know it's a, you know we made fake IDs and stuff like that. I mean, back in those days in D.C., beer and wine at, at eighteen, hard liquor at twenty one. Yeah, and and if you needed to work in these places, you need to be eighteen. And we weren't when we started out. We were not eighteen, 
And one of the things, when I look at pictures of us back then, it's hysterical. That anybody would think you were 18, right? Uh, obviously, <laughs> they really didn't care. <laughs> right. As long as I, you had that little uh, fake ID, sure thing, kid. Funny stuff. Yeah. But all that being said, you know, one of the other things that happened is is that we, our local version of Dick Clark was this guy named Milt Grant. And one of the guys that occasionally played bass with us, although we played it on, on a Gretsch uh, White Falcon with, with the muted strings, mm-hmm. but his parts were his bass parts. He, he was a little bit older than us. He was already out of school. And he knew Milt Grant and that stuff. And Milt Grant would hire like local kid bands like us to play these dance, whatever these sock hops or whatever they used to call those dance things back then that don't exist anymore. And once again, I can't believe that we got hired to do that stuff. But as a result, like one time we were on, a, on like a, a a couple day tour with Jimmy Clem, the guy that had a rockabilly hit called Just a Dream. Mm-hmm. In those days, the people that had the hits, whether it was like Chuck Berry or Jimmy Clanton, they'd go to one of these shows where they'd play and they'd play their hits and maybe two songs and that was it. So when we get, we get a job backing somebody, we get to play our thing. And as I mentioned in the book, and I can't mention, I can't be too, I can't comment on this too strongly. You know, today, you know, you, today, I'll open shows for people, a gig's a gig. But you always, no, no matter how good you are, you're the DOA, the dreaded opening act. Right. Nobody wants to hear the dreaded opening act, you know. But back then, they just didn't care. You just did your thing. And then and then you backed up the, the star who came in yeah. and sang two songs and, uh, and took off, right? That's true. Now, one of the exceptions to this rule was the Bo Diddley show. If you remember Bo's first album with Bring It to Jerome and uh, and uh, all that stuff, you know? Yeah. They, Bo played all night. And let me tell you something, it was awesome. Oh, oh yeah. So you got to see Bo Diddley early on. Uh, with that. Silver Springs, Maryland. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So after high school, um, you uh, you head off to college and you went to Central Ohio in Antioch College. Why... Why that? Okay. Actually, geographically, it's Western. They say it's near Dayton. It's more Western Ohio, but we don't need to quibble about that. I did. <laughs> well, you, here, you you do live in Ohio now. so you, I live in Ohio. <laughs> we, you know, you know, we, I'm in California. What do I know? <laughs> well, you're in Northern California. You should be your own state, too. Yeah. yeah. But anyhow, um, so I wasn't, you know, I, I was less than a marginal student, but, but I got excited. I got accepted to two schools. Now, now remember, as you know, I came back to do my senior year of high school by myself because I wanted it. was my last hurrah with the, with the boys and girls that I was growing up. That I, yeah, you so, were with your grandparents, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. which is another story all to itself. But anyway, um, so I did. I did fill out all my college stuff and whatnot. And I, I applied to Brown University because my grandfather was a Brown graduate. Alumni. Okay. And it was rejected out of hand. I mean, uh, I'm not sure. They, I think they saw my name and they saw my SATs or something. Boom, that was that. But uh, And, yeah, they had SATs back then, too. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, so I applied to the Georgetown Foreign Service School because of my dad's career, and I thought that would make dad happy, and Antioch College. And I got accepted to both those schools. Now, the last thing that I wanted to do was to be a foreign service officer. And I heard 
that at Antioch College, and this, keep in mind, this is 1958-59. This was a big deal back then. You could have, the dorms weren't co-ed, but you could have women in your dorm, maybe even in your room. This was a big deal. Oh, yeah. So I thought about the possibilities of a woman in my room as opposed to the Georgetown Foreign Service School. It was a really easy choice. And I remember my friends uh, from my graduating class, their comment was, you're going to that Pinko Free Love School in the Midwest? And I went, you bet. And off you went. And that was an integrated college, right? It was. Yeah, that's something else, too. Yeah. That's a big deal in uh, 19. Back then, it certainly was. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So is that how you fell in love with, uh, uh, well, let's just say Southern Ohio? Well, you know, I, I sort of lucked into coming to Southern Ohio, which didn't have much to do with my past because I, I was able to buy 126 acres very cheap in the late, late to 1980s. However, uh, where Antioch is in Yellow Springs, there's a lot of, you know, Ohio, there's a lot of flat Ohio that's not very exciting, but, but Yellow Springs, there's some really interesting geological anomalies. There's Clifton Gorge and Glen Helen that are like the land of time for God. You expect to see dinosaurs. So I, I was aware before I moved to Ohio in 1991 that Ohio was a maligned state, you know, that there were really beautiful places in Ohio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about wanderlust. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a big fascination uh, of the 20th century because sure. you now have this ability to drive or ride, if you will, around the country at will. And I, and I believe that that was a big deal for you, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk about it a lot because 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 it really meant a lot. And you know something, it actually still does too. I mean. To get in a vehicle, I mean, obviously motorcycles are more fun to ride than cars sometimes are to drive, but it's the same kind of thing, really. I mean, you're really in a little movable universe. It's sort of like a spaceship of some sort, and that was always important to me. And maybe it's because my family traveled around so much when I was a kid um, that I felt comfortable doing that. I don't know. I still really love to do it. Obviously, um, I've come to a point in my life where I like to spend time home also, but I'll tell you that if I have, if I'm spending too much time at home, it's almost like I start to forget who I am. I got to get out on the road again. Wow. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the funny thing, uh, we, I think of rock and roll sometimes is, uh, you know, joining the circus and, you know, running off and going, oh, going out on tour. And, and it oh. kind of served that purpose for, for your generation, uh, you know, uh, post-war. Uh, we talked Absolutely. a little bit about that. So Absolutely. now you, you, you brought up spaceships. So I got to ask about your love for sci-fi novels. Right. I mean, most people don't know. Music nerds are usually nerds of some other persuasion. That is certainly true. So when I was a kid, for some reason, I don't know why it was. Uh, you know, all those, all these science fiction names like Isaac Asimov and uh, Robert Block and all these guys. Now you can take a college course in this stuff. You know. Yeah, but this was all pulp back when you were reading. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was the kind of stuff that my parents looked askance at. Yeah, you might as well be reading comic books. Close, really close. Now, 
I, I'm a reader. I like to read. I always did, and I still do. And I started out, I don't know how this happened. I really don't. Uh, I started out getting the some of the Robert Henlein's books uh, that, uh, that were written for younger people, like Space Cadet and stuff like that. But then once I was bitten by the genre, I was down to the drugstore. You know, the, the, the uh, astounding science fiction would come out once a month and, and they'd have books and all this kind of stuff. And I had my paper route and I'd buy these books and I absolutely loved them. Now, I got to say, I think my current, it's been a while since I've read a quote unquote modern science fiction author, but I'm extremely fond of all the science fiction-esque movies that they grace us with these days. And I have to tell you that I've become an addict of the Marvel Omniverse. Yeah. These I'm going... I'm just, I, I, I thought it myself. I know what you mean. But yeah. the last couple of years, I've kind of said, oh, fine. It's great sci-fi. Well, check out... I just watched the first season of Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all these these shows are great. Now, a lot of these these shows are not kid shows by any stretch of the imagination. No, the best science fiction is actually taking yeah. the world's problems sure. of today and putting well, it like in Jessica, the context so that you Jessica can talk. Jones, the, the Jessica Jones, the alcoholic superhero. I mean, really, it's just great stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, I, uh, Yormit, you and I could go on for an hour or two on just that, but I got to reel us back in here. Well, so, let's, we'll talk about that another time because yeah. we just, because I could go on for a long time. We we will we will I will put that on the on the on the agenda here to uh, to do in the in the near future. Maybe maybe the next time you're out in San Francisco, we sure. can uh, sit and talk about that. So, well, I actually, just as a quick side before a sidebar before you get onto the meat and potatoes of this. I'm going to be out of freight and salvage for three days for New Year's, so who knows? Okay, well, hey, we will we will have to make a date for then. Uh, definitely, yep. definitely. That's good. That's good. So, um, uh, yeah, you you mentioned in the book that you become a guitarist despite yourself. So, how oh. does one accidentally fall into becoming? Well, according to Rolling Stone magazine, one of the top 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Yeah. You know, you play music, so you know what a bunch of self-serving bull that can be. However, <laughs> however, I'll take it. Take the win, you know. That's right. Uh, well, I, I guess it goes. I guess it really has to do with. Uh, it has to do with, with two really major things, and one is Ian Buchanan uh, in 1960 in, in Yellow Springs because he started me playing the guitar. Now I'm starting to play, and the other thing of course, is Jefferson Airplane because they they almost grabbed, dragged me kicking and screaming into this rock band. I mean, you, you know, I, I think about the, the bullshit I fed myself back then sometimes and I wonder, Jesus, you know. I mean, before I got in the airplane, when I graduated college, I was, thinking, I was going, you know, blues musicians don't get the respect they need in, in this country, so I'm going to move to Copenhagen or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> right. yeah, I, but the good news is is that Paul called me up for the audition and I wound up in the airplane. Right. So the other thing is, is is all the doors that that opened to me, not just the money and the records and all that kind of stuff, but the opportunity to learn how to play electric guitar. So that was the, the, the real linchpin uh, in Yellow Springs uh, when you were at Amazon. Absolutely. 
is uh, is the is moving to electric guitar. So okay, so let's let's have you tell the diggers the story of your Gibson uh, J forty five and how you got it uh, that trick to amplifying it. Oh yeah, okay. So so Jack had. I'm trying to think what he had then. He had like a nineteen. Who I guess it was probably a. <laughs> I think he had a 57 telly or something. I bet he's sorry he sold that guitar. Oh, I bet. <laughs> he had, and, and Jack, you know, you know, I was sort of a gearhead, but Jack has always been an electronics gadget head, so he and his dad built his own amplifier. Anyway, uh, Jack actually had an electric guitar, and I didn't have the money at the time for that. So, so I took my J45, and you're going to love this, our PA was the was the PA side of his Wallensack tape recorder. You know, you just plug stuff into it and, and push the record button down and have it come out through the speakers. That was it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is unbelievable. That was the PA, yeah. That, that yeah. was the PA and the guitar amp. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, 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 what is it? Uh, the, the mother of invention, uh, you know. Something. Uh, <laughs> something. So anyway, so I, I take the Wallensack mic, and I'd stick it up under my belt so that it was hanging down with the mic facing out. And I'm standing up with my guitar with the guitar strap, and I put the back of the guitar against. Yeah, you the, kind of hook it to your belt, right? The, the, I'd play. And <laughs> I guess it worked. <laughs> and you were electrified. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So let me let me ask you about lyrics, because, I, again, this is really interesting that I, I, I got from the book and how you equate a lover for the darker elements yeah. because of your background. So that leads me to, and, and you do talk about this, you know, uh, an emotionally difficult family life, but, yeah. and, and I think it's, 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 uh, I, I might be able to relate. It's like, it's like that Northern European cold family uh, love and sort of thing. Is, is that what you're talking okay. about? Totally. And I, I need to, I need to quickly say, that I wasn't at the time. I wasn't aware that it was emotionally difficult. No, that's what, this is just your existence. In yeah, you're... that's just what it was. But yeah, yeah, that. I mean, I mean, first of all, the Finnish thing. You know, I mean, the Finns are stoic to say the least. And and the other thing is like it's like the Russian Jewish part of my family. I mean, you look back on it, it's ridiculous anybody could ever have a conversation at all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They talk about wasps in this country, but they they've got nothing on the northern Europe. No, they don't. <laughs> I mean, you know, each, each ethnic group has their own affliction, but uh, but I think darkness happens up north. Yeah, well, you know, it is dark half the year. It is, <laughs> so, and that that does weigh on you. Uh, you know, uh, as you know, you know, being in San Francisco, hey, you know, we're we're in uh, August, you know, uh, and uh, we'll be lucky if we see the sun every uh, four or five days. Uh, so, well, uh, you know, speaking of that, because as you know, I lived in San Francisco for twenty years. Yes, it is. It's beautiful in San Francisco. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But, but you have to live there to realize that, that only happens like half a dozen times a year. <laughs> right, right, right. Especially October, right? So. Oh God. Yes. Have a nice, have a nice time at uh, Hardly Strictly. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now you've played that several times. So. I've played it a number of times now. We're we're not on this year's lineup. Yeah. Because I guess they were going to do something new, but then they had everybody that they always used to do except us. I don't know. I'll get it. 
You'll be back. You'll be back. I know. I'm just kidding. I know that. I know how it goes. So I, I like how the book is filled with what seems like incongruous thought pieces, uh, sometimes yeah. by you and sometimes by people you've known through the journey. Yeah. Why yeah. did you craft a book uh, with these? Well, to me, it's like Kurt, to me, it was like Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, you know, where his character Billy, yeah, Billy Pilgrim, right? He's always slipping through time, and all this stuff happens. And you know, when I read that at the time, it's it just made perfect sense to me. So, so I when I started doing this because I had some writings that I liked that I'd saved from old blogs and this and that, <clears throat> and I thought, you know, and and I was not encouraged to do this either, but I told him, I go look. This is kind of how like my mind works, and I'm going to do it anyway. So I did. Wow, it, it, it does make it kind of interesting. You know, you're in one one thing, and you're expecting to you know move to the next chronological uh, piece, and and then all of a sudden this thing pops up. So I yeah. I totally see the the Vonnegut uh, book. Uh, yeah, it was a good book. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but um, now before we, we we get you to San Francisco, I want to ask you about playing uh, Gertie's Folk City in sure. the uh, the summer of '61. Absolutely. Yeah, Mike Porco, Gertie's Folk City. So. So you did try New York first. Well, you know, Antioch has this work-study program thing, and I got this co-op job at a spinal cord damage hospital as as an orderly, which is why I don't like hospital shows, because I know what that stuff really smells like, but that's another story. Hmm. Um, But That's right. right. You worked for a summer, right? Uh, I did. And and you know something? I met some of the most amazing people I've ever met. It was a great job. But anyway, so... So I'm so I'm in New York. I knew I had to go to New York because that's my friend Ian was there, and that, and I knew that that was a seminal place for the kind of music that I loved. Mm-hmm. And in that era, it was. Now I also know it was happening in Chicago and San Francisco too. But anyway, I wanted to go to New York. So so I got there, and Ian, I guess he just knew everybody anyway. And so I I was introduced to Gertie's Folk City, and I went to all the different places like the Gaslight and whatnot. But Gertie's Folk City had a hoot nanny that was run by Brother John Sellers, and anyone could sign up. And I just jumped right in. I signed up. And one of the funny things is, is back then, I didn't even have a set. I'd only learned maybe three or four songs. I was still in the beginning of my finger-picking career. I mean, when I moved moved to California in 62, I'd only been finger-picking for two years. So anyhow... But I had, but I have a good right hand, and I had a good right hand then. So, so I got over, and I got an encore. But I, I didn't have any more songs to play, so I repeated <laughs> the first one. And I saw, I saw Brother John Sellers there. I saw Brother John Sellers come out of the back room, heading to the stage, flanked by these two tall, gorgeous blonde women, and I thought, this blues life looks mighty good to me. Sure does. Well, I think I think that's a, a big reason why a lot of us get into the rock. No question. Absolutely. <laughs> so in 62, you get to San Francisco, uh, right. and uh, uh, I, I think you're at Santa Clara University. Uh, yep. So, And that was a brand new university, I think, uh, right then. Uh, well, Santa Clara had been around for a while, but what was brand new about it was it was the first year that it was co-ed. Oh, that's it. Okay. Which was, uh, here's a funny thing, too. Uh, when I got there, you know, I'd, I'd lived in New York by myself and I'd had an apartment in D.C. and all this kind of stuff. You know, I'd, I, was, I was sort of like quasi grown up. Mm-hmm. And to hear that the guys that were seniors that year complaining about women on campus 
I thought they'd lost their minds. Really, really, and and like when you had to get there, I think didn't you take a boat from the Philippines into San Francisco? And no, that was when we came back from the Philippines. Oh, I, I okay. did, but that wasn't when I went there to just to stay. So uh, when we were in the Philippines, yeah, we took a ship back to San Francisco. And speaking of those beautiful mornings we were talking about, I remember when we sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge and headed to the port in Oakland. It was one of those mornings. Oh really? Oh, so uh, so maybe that uh, helped get you back here uh, to to, well, to school, huh? I would have moved to San Francisco because that's where all the beatniks were. I figured that's where the good stuff was happening. Uh-huh. The grades weren't good enough for USF, and I had all these credits. I had to go to a Jesuit school, so I wound up in Santa Clara. Yeah, down in the South Bay. <laughs> Just so the diggers know, that's a that's a that's a, right now. It's a, that's about a forty-five to an hour uh, drive. I'm back yeah. in. I, I, as you say in the book, that 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 was you might as well have been in Timbuktu. Yeah, if you didn't if you didn't have a car, it was a bus trip. Yeah. yeah. Now you start going to Hootenannies, and uh, you meet Janis Joplin. I do the first night, the first weekend I was there. Uh, I mean, you know, I talk about this a lot because it's still exciting me to think about it. I'm on campus at this really straight school. I'm wondering. If I've lost my mind, you know, but of course, finishing college was, I, I, that was the deal with mom and dad. So that was the deal. Yeah. And I see this mimeograph thing. Some of us actually remember mimeograph things. And it said, Hoot Nanny at the Folk Theater tonight on First Avenue in San Jose. And I went and Janice was one of the people who was there. Now, this is really funny because, you know, when I, when I, Left New York and moved out to San Francisco. I had this sort of east east coast east coast uh, superiority, this little arrogance. Oh, you know, I know it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, we all do. And and I was convinced that when I got to when I got to California, I was going to teach everybody all this stuff that I knew because I just came from New York. Mm-hmm. And of course, when I got to California, I realized I was meeting a whole lot of people. They were teaching me all this stuff because they were from California. Anyhow, so this first weekend, one of the, one of the great moments is there's Janice. Uh, we were talking backstage. You know, there was no, we were just the kids hanging out backstage. What are we going to do? Janice goes, uh, she heard me playing a little bit backstage. She goes, do you want to back me up? And I said, sure. What are you going to do? And I, I think she, you know, I remember to hear these stories about Chuck Berry. Mr. Berry, what songs are we going to play? And he goes, Chuck Berry songs? <laughs> uh, hey, Janice, what songs are we going to play? I don't know, blues songs. Fine, let's do it. Right. And we did. And, you know, and it worked. And we had a really good time. And I realized in that moment, I realized a lot of stuff. I realized that there were more artistic centers in the universe than Manhattan. And... I realized that I had met one of the one of the world's great blues artists. So, did you know it right away that night? Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of hard to miss. I, yeah. I, I've seen yeah. a lot of her stuff uh, yeah. recently, and I mean, just it, it's just you know, it, I don't care who's behind her or how good or not good it might be. She's always just always. the thing you just stare at. So. Uh, so I have to ask about the typewriter tape. Uh, uh, tell us about uh, making that. Um, did you know? Well, we know Janice had that special quality in her voice. But I, it's just it's hilarious that your first wife, Margareta, is typing in the background. Well, it, it, it is after the fact, but in the moment it's not. Because once again, 
you know, uh, Janice and I had a gig uh, doing a benefit at the coffee gallery on Grant North Beach. And I don't know why I didn't go to San Francisco to, to rehearse, but I didn't. She came down to Santa Clara and she came over to the house. And we, we had this big house at the time that had like almost no furniture in it, like so many sort of college age kids did back then. And Janice and I were rehearsing. And I had just bought, I'm trying to think whether I recorded this with my friend Manchester. I just bought a mono recorder, but, but, but my ex-roommate from school had had a recorder that he'd hot-rodded to record it at the 15 IPS. It was like a big deal back then. And in any case, whosoever recorder it was, we always recorded everything. And Janice and I were playing. We weren't, we weren't cutting tracks or anything like that. And people go, well, is it like a rhythm track? I'm going, no. We were just, the recorder was running because it was there, and Janice and I are playing, and Steve Mann's on the tapes also, and Margaret is typing, and that was the deal. We didn't give it a second thought. I mean, I guess after the fact, I mean, people go, how could she be typing when you were playing? And I'm going, we were just rehearsing. She didn't give a shit. Yeah, and and you guys didn't pay attention either. It no, was, of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. So you meet Paul Kantner, and yep. this is like the the beginnings of the Jefferson Airplane. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, so I met Paul the, the first semester I was there, and uh, this friend of mine had been his his ex roommate of the year before. Paul had dropped out of Santa Clara, and this is funny because you know my friend Bob Kinsey, the one who introduced me to Paul was the only other guy at school that I could kind of relate to because he had long hair and a beard in an era when nobody did. Right. Because he was a surfer guy. And so he took me to Santa Cruz because that's where Paul was living. And Paul was living in a surfer shack by the beach with a surfboard leaning up against it and all that wetsuit out front, all this stuff. Wow. I mean, it's so California. Yeah, to totally. Totally. And so there we are, and I meet him. And, and he's playing 12-string, 6-string, and uh, long-neck banjos, uh, a Pete Seeger-style banjo, claw hammer style. And, uh, and we start talking, and we realize he's not a blues guy, so we don't bond in that way, but we love folk music. We bond in that way, and we become friends. And ultimately, he winds up being one of the owners of what started out as the folk theater in terms of the, to the offstage. In San Francisco. No, this is in this is in San Jose. No, it is okay. And, and I will say also, um, since I guess uh, pot is uh, recreationally legal in in your state these days, in many states, that, that's, I've been told that's the case. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, soon uh, to be Ohio. <laughs> uh, oh, no question about it. It's, it's coming. So, I, I believe the sale of herb have really helped finance the life of the off states for a long time because that was. Uh. And that was the deal. And the funny thing about that also was, even though Pop was a major bus back then, I mean, it was kind of like, I mean, Pop was never my favorite drug, but I was a sort of a hippie back then. I smoked plenty of it. Mm -hmm. to. Nobody trusted you if you didn't smoke pot. Right, right. Anyway, so that's how I met Paul. And then when Paul got tired of the scene, of being, in, being sort of like one of the organizers of the folk theater, he moved to San Francisco because he always wanted to do a vocally based group. He met Marty and Signe, the two, you know, from the original band, uh, Airplane, mm -hmm. and he asked me to come up to to uh, audition, and uh, I did. And as you know, rock and roll is very seductive, and the rest truly is history. 
Yeah, so you 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 kind of slowly give up folk music uh, to uh, to play more rock and roll. But this is like 1965, right? And then the and the airplane through 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 the uh, through its first album really is a folk rock band. Also, I, I mean, the yeah. first record is folk rock record, no yeah. question. But let's face it, the Beatles are now huge, and every baby boomer kid in America wants to join a rock and roll band. So how how did you guys get so far so quickly? Well, a lot of it, a lot of it was out was luck. I mean, you know, you're around them, you know the music business, and you can be the best or the most talented and never get a break, and nobody will ever hear of you. Oh yeah, common story. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of there's a confluence and the opposite, of course, uh, and the opposite, of course, too. And but for us, there's a confluence of events that that really worked out for us. And one of them was the energy that was in San Francisco at that time, coupled with the fact that we actually had a real manager, this guy Matthew Cates. Uh, there's a whole bunch of there's a there's a lot of stories about the lawsuits with Matthew and this and that, and I'm not gonna spend time composting Matthew's reputation here because what he did do for us is he had some connections in LA and he got us some auditions and with what was beginning to happen in San Francisco with what I believe the charlatans really started Mm -hmm. uh, with the longshoremen's dances in San Francisco coupled with the fact that we, we weren't studio professionals but we were talented, and we had a sound because of the vocal stuff that Paul and Marty and Signe were putting together. And we got a record deal. So, I mean, you know, you can pitch record companies forever, and nobody will ever notice you. But we were noticed by a lot of record stuff. A lot of it also had to do with the fact that Ralph Gleason, Ralph J. Gleason, may rest in peace, reviewed us. San Francisco Chronicle. That's right. He was a reporter for the Chronicle. And he pretty much had a jazz column, but he treated us and the other San Francisco acts that he liked also with respect that was not given, quote unquote, rock and roll bands, really until Monterey. I mean, he treated us as viable artists. And the people in L.A., for whatever reason, took notice of that, and they gave us an opportunity to audition, and we got a record deal. So let's get our old buddy Jack Cassidy in the band. How'd that okay. come about? Sure. So, so good old Jack. You know, we we, we played with the Triumphs in uh, in fifty in uh, fifty eight fifty nine, and then I went off to Antioch, and I didn't see Jack for a couple of years, and and I know that he because Jack was a professional musician. He was in the union years before I was, and he started playing bass because there's a lot of guitar players in D.C. And because he was hanging out with Danny Gatton. And Danny Gatton could really play the guitar, so they didn't need another guitar player. Mm-hmm. So Jack started playing bass, and he became a really good bass player. So anyway, so when we started looking around, when Bob Harvey, who was playing played bass in the airplane before Jack came out, he was a great bass player, but he was an upright, up, upright player, bluegrass-style music. And it wasn't for, it wasn't really what the band was collectively looking for at the time. I'm not sure we knew what we were looking for, but we need we need we knew we needed to be more electric. Anyway, was Jack living out in San Francisco by this time? Jack was going to Montgomery Junior College back then. So, so I call up this friend of mine named Bob Lindner, who we used to play bluegrass with back when I was back home, and I go, 
do you know where Jack is? I really like to talk to him. And he goes, well, actually, he's right here. <laughs> and I, right. And I, I, he put Jack on the phone. And I went, listen, I'm in this rock and roll band, and we're looking for a bass player. Are you interested? He goes, what's the band called? And I went, Jefferson Airplane. I mean, back then, band names were like, you know, the Two Tones or like like Jack and the Untouchables or something like that, you know. He starts to laugh uncontrollably because <laughs> – it's, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it, I was sort of like disdainful of quote unquote pop music, and now I'm in a band with silly name, and I'm looking for a bass player. So anyway, I, I remember when I told him, and we've got this manager Matthew Case, and he's giving us fifty bucks a week, whether we work or not. And he went, send me a ticket. <laughs> I'll take the <laughs> okay. So we sent him a ticket. All so right. Margaret and I went to pick him up at San Francisco Airport. You know, in those days, you could almost walk out to the plane. Yeah. We're out of the gate, and he gets off the plane. And he, I looked at him, and I remember my first words were, you better be able to play this thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, because your reputation is on the line now. I never heard him play bass, but I knew how he was, and I'm sure he's going to be good. Yeah. He didn't love piano. Yeah, of course, it all turned out great. So we had uh, Spencer Dryden, and uh, and then you guys stole Grace Slick from the Great Society. Yeah, we did. Uh, Signe went off to— Well, she was Ray pregnant, Smith. right? She was pregnant, and she was turning into more of an adult than the rest of us at that time, and, and that was that. Well, Grace, you know— I think it's unfortunate that Grace no longer sings because she's one of the great voices of my time. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. But she doesn't. Yeah, that even, even my parents recognized that when I'd play them rock oh, songs. You know, when you um, recently I heard, you know, you wonder where these things come from, but I heard a solo track of her singing White Rabbit without anything about just the vocal alone. Yeah, the isolation uh, tracks yeah, that her, you hear. This is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was so good. Anyway, so we, we had seen the Great Society, and we heard their versions of White Rabbit and somebody to love. I didn't give the songs a second thought, but we all gave Grace a lot of thought because she was front in the band. She was just awesome. I mean, I can't even remember what one of their songs was that we heard her do, but we knew she was awesome. So and Jack, Jack sort of got the call to go over, and, uh, and I, I use this metaphor loosely, feel her out to see what she wanted to do. And? She did. She wanted to play this. And she immediately said, I'm in. She did. And she told her band to get lost, more or less. And then, uh, you know, Jack notes, and I think in the, in the section where he talks about, where he talks about going to get, get Grace in the band, we've been rehearsing. Sydney was still playing in the band. Mm. And Sydney would show up one night at the Fillmore, and Grace went on, and that was it. So give me a, a give us a little taste of the early hippie scene because this is this is sixty five sixty six way before Summer of Love right. uh, there in San Francisco. So I think, I mean, look, so I'm sure from the beats to to the hippie scene, right? Yeah, it was, it was moving to, from the beat to something else, and I think the transitory movement. I'm not sure it even had a name, but it had to do with a lot of the Edwardian clothes, secondhand stores. <clears throat> where you can still buy really cool stuff cheap and all that kind of stuff. The hippie thing, I don't I don't remember hearing the name hippie probably until, I don't know, later on. So there was this thing, whatever you called it, I mean, people dressing up, looking like somebody from an Arby Beardsley painting or something like that, you know, 
and playing music and all this kind of stuff. And then I didn't even know how it began to morph into what we sort of call hippiness today. I mean, I, I live in, in a college town. I live I live here in Athens, Ohio, and and there's a lot of people I know that are, that are younger and they talk about this person's a hippie and blah, blah, blah. And I go, look, just because he's got real long hair and might have dreads and smokes pot does not make him a hippie. Because my recollections of what we considered hippiness at the time was to be really involved in a productive way in society, to be doing something artistic and not be and not just panhandling for spare change that came later. So in the end, you guys are at the big musical moments of the 1960s yeah. for for better or worse i mean we're talking right. monterey woodstock altamont those Correct. are three of the biggest events uh yeah. in music culture of the 1960s hell i think you guys were even the band for bill graham's mind troop charity event right yeah that's how we met bill right wow that's that's crazy i mean yeah do you think back on that and just say i mean it's like it's you know and uh, some people might give us uh, you know a hard time for equating this but i mean it's like being at the gettysburg address or you know the uh, uh the the signing of uh, of the declaration of independence or something like that on on some on, on, on a cultural level you're right and the answer is uh, yeah I, I wouldn't argue with that but, but that's just a thing it was just that's right it was, like, it was just another gig right that's right that's who we were and that's what was going on now you can't buy your way into something like that. You just have to, somebody has to give you the ticket. Yeah, right place. We had played at the Monterey Jazz Festival, and along with uh, Butterfield Blues Band. But still, at that time, the rock and roll or whatever, pop or whatever you wanted to call it, what we did, had never been dignified by a real festival of its own. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like the redheaded stepchild in the music world. Well, yeah, sure, you were making money and you, know, you could be a star and sell records if you were lucky and stuff like that, but it wasn't real music. So with the Monterey Pop Festival, all of a sudden we had a real festival put on by real people that had money, and there we were. So that was a big deal. That, that, was, that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, uh, December 1969, you're at what a lot of people point to as the end of the 60s. Uh, I, I kind of disagree with that. I think it's a little bit longer movement. But, you know, you're you're there at, at Altamont. And uh, anybody who's seen the movie Gimme Shelter we, has seen that you guys do not have a good time on stage. No, it was a bad, it was a bad day. Uh, no, I agree with you. I, I wouldn't call that the end of the 60s. I think the 60s went on to the early 70s in spirit. Uh, but, you know, you know, people like to, you know, if you think about what a trifecta of festivals that was, it's nice to, it makes it easy to write about, good talking points, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah Altamont was a bad day. And, and it was ill thought out. And there's a lot of blame to go around, and I'm not focusing on anybody. It was a bad, and the audience has to take some of the blame for this too. It was a, it was a bad day. I think we can all agree on that. 
Yeah, if if you if you know the story, and and I've talked to Joe Selvin about it, who wrote a great book on it last year. Uh, I've uh, spoken to uh, Sam Cutler about it. You know, who was managing the Rolling Stones at the time. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, the, the size of the stage uh, is a problem. The the fact that it had gotten moved uh, several times. You know, yeah. it's December in, <laughs> in Northern California. Uh, you know, and yeah, the Hell's Angels are the security detail. Right. Uh, you know, it's just there's. So there's, you know, maybe you take one or two of those things out, and maybe everything is okay. But you know, uh, it uh, yeah, it is what it is. It was, a, it was a perfect storm of mistakes, but but that that was the deal. So anyway, so I mean, it happened, and and we need to talk about it because it uh, it was an important cultural event on some level. But the thing is, when I think about what sounded the death knell of the '60s, wasn't an isolated incident. Like Altamont, it was the fact that we were all getting older. Yeah, and that's the deal, you know. I mean, you know, you know, those of us who were successful in the music business, we had money. You know, we no longer had that the artistic pressure to succeed. The living in a three floor walk up makes you have, you know, stuff like that. Well, I mean, you you are now separated from the community too, as you said. You know, uh, you know the same thing happens with the L.A. guys. Uh, you know, who you know everybody hung around in Laurel Canyon, and then all of a sudden, you know, oh, well, wait a minute, uh, Charlie Manson happens, and you know that's the end of that. That was the end of that. So, so I think that I think that just life interceded as life does, and and the world began to morph into something else. Now, the thing is. That that whole period of time that we're talking about, however you want to date the death of the hippie or any of that kind of stuff, I mean, it was a magical time on a lot of levels. Um, San Francisco, as you know, is a bigger town now than it was then, but it can only get so big. I mean, back when I moved to San Francisco, yeah, I think— surrounded by water on three sides. Yeah. I mean, I think the tallest building when I first moved there was like eight or nine stories tall because they weren't earthquake-proof. Yeah. And it was a che- we moved there because it was a cheap place to live. Yeah. What a concept, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I think as the as you know, especially when the scene became publicized, maybe with the the I forget the first whether it was Time Magazine, one of those articles did a Summer of Love thing or something like that, and people started coming from San Francisco to San Francisco from all over the United States and the world. Because it looked like a free lunch. Oh, the Life magazine cover, yeah. Well, that was later on, but I mean, the, the, the Summer of Love thing was before that. But anyway, all of a sudden you have a community filled with people that don't have work, don't have money, you know, sort of a prescient uh, awareness of the homeless problem, mm-hmm. and they're all over the place. And I'm not criticizing these people for going there. If I'd been that age or something like that and I had nothing to do in Des Moines, I would have gone there too. But I, I, that that didn't help what the community was before that. Yeah, uh, it just got to be uh, overpopulation in a yeah. small area. The and and, and and there were internal pressures uh, because of that, but there were also external pressures from the establishment uh, sure. trying to push back. And you know, uh, you know, the end of the hippie moment, where wherever you want to call it, you know, creates a, a backlash. Uh, and um, we are in some ways still dealing with some of that backlash. Oh, but, absolutely. But uh, so as the decade is coming to a close, you and Jack begin playing out as Hot Tuna. Why Why did you feel the need to move away from the airplane and do something else? I don't think that we actually 
conceived of it as moving away from the airplane in the beginning. The airplane went through a period of time when it wasn't touring as much. And Jack and I wanted to play, and so we did that even before we had the name Hot Tuna. Now, Hot Tuna began to take on a life as a life of its own. And as whatever was or wasn't happening with the airplane was not as much fun as it was in the beginning, Hot Tuna began to be able to began to take up more of my life space. And and that was that. Now, you know, when I when I quit the airplane. I didn't tell the band I was quitting. I just walked away and didn't come back. If I had to do it over again, we would have done a farewell tour and made some money. But the funny thing about the airplane is it's such an odd band. We had those two hits, Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. Yeah. And, we, and we were an album band. We sold a bunch of albums, and we were a good band. But in my opinion, this many years later on, we didn't. We, we were. We, we were never the machine that a band. And the classic example to me is like the Eagles. They had a huge string of hits and could always go out and play those hits and always kill. So, so well, that, the that band was put together. No, I know specifically in a professional, uh, sure. you know, almost like you know, straight out of the Brill Building or you know, Hollywood oh, casting or what right. have you. Right, and it, and it worked for those guys. It worked for them. Now, nothing could have been further from us than that. But and, and I think that on a lot of levels, we had a lot of really creative moments that would never have happened if we were, quote, unquote, professional musicians. But what it also didn't do for us is, is give us the power of the, the cushion of that string of hits. And I, and I think about the 89 reunion yeah. because, you know, when we got back together again, in a lot of ways, it was trying to recreate the starship, not the airplane. Yeah. And as it was 20 years later, we were 20 years older, some of the chemistry was going a lot of stuff, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't a bad band, but it wasn't really the Jefferson Airplane anymore. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. So from then on, you and Jack have remained musical partners. It seems yep. uh, uh, it seems maybe musicians uh, come and go, but you two keep on trucking. Um, so <laughs> was that by design or is it just how it's been? You know, I, the answer is just how it's been. I mean, somebody was talking to me on one of these interviews recently about, so when did you just decide on being a musician as a career? And I said, you know, when I was younger, I don't ever remember the word career ever entering my mind because that smacked too much of adulthood, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you love That's to- That's why we are musicians, to escape it. Yeah, <laughs> totally, Yes. And if you're as lucky as me and Jack are, and you've got to be able to do it as a primary source of income all our lives, it doesn't get any better than that. But I think that, you know, you know, like Chris, my friend Chris Smith, the songwriter, says, when people ask him about him doing what he does, I fell into it when I was a kid and I never fell out. And that's exactly how I feel about it. Yeah. So Hot Tuna has continually morphed and, and evolved, uh, sometimes electric, sometimes acoustic. Yeah. Uh, all through the 70s, you guys release eight albums and tour relentlessly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we're, we're, I think we're really close to this answer, but what was the difference between the airplane and Hot Tuna? Well, one of the differences for me is that all of a sudden I was the primary songwriter. Uh but as a result of the airplane guys and gals giving me the opportunity to write songs at my own speed and always get one on the album, um, 
I was able to morph sort of gently into it. Right. Because right. um, you never really considered yourself a songwriter. No, I didn't. Yeah, no, you, I didn't. Just, you just were a picker, a player. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, but the thing was, and all of a sudden, you know, we were having a great time. You know, we were selling out shows and stuff. And, and you know, that's a good wave to ride. Yeah, and it seems like you guys are really a live act more than anything else. Yes, you know, looking back on it, you know, when I, you know, I do a lot of teaching at the Fur Peace Ranch stuff, and and sometimes people will talk about guitar solos, and and when I teach electric guitar, which I do infrequently, I go, you know, in my description, I go, look, I'm not going to teach solos because I can, I couldn't remember one solo from the next, except except for White Rabbit, I know how to do that one, <laughs> right? But but the thing is, my thing with the electric guitar that made it always fun for me is the sonic landscape. And and when you listen to a lot of that hot tuna stuff, and in my defense with the seventies, there's guitar overdubs up the wazoo. I wouldn't do that these days, you know, because for whatever reason. But that was that was the recorded sound. So so live, you can't duplicate that stuff. And even though I'd occasionally try another guitar player in the band, to be honest with you, this is not to be critical of them as musicians. The way I played rhythm guitar in a band was what helped drive the band. So the rhythm section is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. So we really function best as a trio most of the time, or sometimes as a quartet with Nicky Buck playing keyboards. But anyway, so yes, I agree with you in many respects, a live band. All right. So how did you end up in southeastern Ohio and uh, the creation of Fur Peace Ranch? Right. Well, when I split up with my ex-wife in 1984, I, I packed all my shit into this 1977 Chevy van I had. It's like, so this is like something out of a... What is it, a white Econo line? No, that's a Ford. That was a Ford. This was a gray, this was a gray Chevy sport van. And I sort of, I sort of built... It's funny shit. I, I sort of did a van conversion myself and I put a bed in the back and all this stuff. Anyway, so... I got divorced with my wife and moved upstate New York. And in, in the course of in 1988, I met Vanessa in Florida. We got married and, and we moved back up to New York. Anyway, so it's like 1989 or 90. We're in Woodstock, New York, where we were living. And the phone rings. And this guy, this guy, Big John Clark, called me from Southeast Ohio. And I met Big John back in back in the 60s, and in those days, he was in the import-export business, importing and selling commodities that were difficult to grow in this country. He was one of the big dogs in the uh, in the pot business back in the day. <laughs> right. and, uh, and he moved to Meigs County, Ohio, because they were growing a lot of pot there back in the 70s. And they, they continued to grow a lot of pot until one of the smart guys did a centerfold at high times to change everything. But that's another story anyway. Good thinking, but. Yeah. yeah. But Keep it on the down low. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one would think. If it's illegal, yes, that's a good idea. So anyway, so John calls me up, and he's retiring from the business, whatever people that retire from growing marijuana do. Right. And he says, I've got this piece of property, 126 acres. At the time, I think it's called going legit, but okay. Yeah, something like that. And he, you know, we bought the, we bought that, that property, for thirty for thirty two thousand dollars, that's not very much money for a lot of land. Yeah. Now I went down and looked at it. It was, it was it was a tough winter that year in ninety. So anyway, so John John calls us up and and he 
wants to sell me this piece of property. And I, my, my wife goes, she's going, hang up the phone, hang up the phone. But I, I had a good feeling. So I was at the Albany Airport the next day, and I flew down to Columbus. We drove down to Meigs County. And I looked at this piece of land. It was winter, no leaves off the trees. Uh, there were no buildings on it. There was just poison, uh, poison ivy and multi-floor rows and a lot of start block boxes and camouflage netting and a little river. And I just had a good feeling about it, so we bought it. And when we moved down there in 91, actually we, we camped there in, uh, in, 90 for, in 90 for a bit, and then we moved down to Ohio in 91, and I bought another farm where we lived for a while. But in any case, so the first thing we did before the Fur Peach Ranch was anything more than a pipe dream was we had to clean up start boxes, irrigation pipes, all that stuff that goes along with clandestine marijuana. Uh, the, the leftovers of the last pipe dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got it. So anyway, so we did that. And then you know, we're sitting around the ranch and, you know, no, just looking at each other and we go, you know, because we don't, because I really like teaching. I always did. I taught through before I got in the airplane and all this kind of stuff. And I went, you know, we could, I could see having like a guitar camp here now. And, uh, and Vanessa goes, yeah, and we can call it the Fur Peach Ranch because it's a Fur Peach from anywhere. <laughs> now, if we were doing something, you know, if we got an idea like that today, the first thing you do is start a website. Yeah. Back then, the first thing you did was T-shirts and letterhead stationery. Oh, yes. So we did that. And somewhere there's a Perfect Ranch letterhead stationery around somewhere. And I think I have one of the old T-shirts. Now, had I been left to my own devices, the Perfect Ranch probably would have been a bunch of guys sitting around on around a campfire on hay bales. <laughs> that and is the, not what it is. <laughs> no, that's not what it is. So Vanessa had a real life before me. She was a civil engineer, so she got a loan from the bank. And we started with buildings and if you go to my blog, you can see an aerial view of what it looks like now. I look at it today and I go, man, I can't believe that we did this. Because we've got a theater and a store and our Silo Dela Gallery and the cabins and all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, it's amazing. Well, it reminds me a little of like Leon Helms' uh, rambles uh, in the in the barn, or 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 Daryl's house, or or yeah. or Phil's uh, Terrapin Crossroads. Yeah. Yeah, I've got more land than that, but other than that, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. And Lee, before he passed away, you know, I talked to him and the gal that was like ramrodding his operations barber back then. And we Lee wanted to do something like I have, and he's got the property for it, but I'm sad to say he passed away before he could do it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We're all, we're all in the same ballpark. Yeah, it's kind of it's like a, a new sort of thing with, uh, you know, you guys that were were there in the in the sixties. Uh, you know, the original uh, rock uh, stars, if you will, yeah. uh, suppose the original rock and rollers. But uh, right. you know, yeah. uh, uh, it, 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 and it's nice. Hey, I, I've been up to Terrapin Crossroads a few times. Uh, I have not been to Levon's. Uh, Levon's, so of course, he's passed. But yeah. but uh, and I look forward to to coming to Fur Peace Ranch, and I I see maybe more of that, but. And now you you have uh, you have guitar clinics like uh, most weekends, right? Certainly during the well, the spring. Well, and I, I look at them. I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word clinic because to me that means one of these things at a guitar store without fifty guys and one guitarist. Right. So we have class, whatever you want to call it. It's okay with me. So we have classes. We try to keep. We try never to have more than twelve or thirteen people. Sometimes you do. We try not to. And it's not just me. We, you know, in the beginning, obviously, it was just me shaming my buddies to come and teach for me. Mm -hmm. 
now, you know, we have all different kinds of stuff. Uh, we have jazz players, class, we just all, all sorts of different kinds of stuff. And the workshops are Friday morning to Monday morning. In the beginning, we tried them a week long. First of all, who can get away from their job for a week? And secondly, it just it's just too long, didn't work. So we do that. It's like Friday morning to Monday morning. Uh, we have our NPR show at the concert hall Saturday night and, and stuff like that. And, and it's, it's been working out well. Now, one of the conversations, you know, that it's tough to have without sounding sappy when you do an interview about the ranch, you know, when people ask, what's the real deal? And I go, the real deal, almost in a way more than the great teachers that we have, because we have great teachers, is the is the safe space for like-minded spirits where everybody knows you can geek out about your guitar or your a piece of gear or the music you love or some piece that you need to turn somebody else on. I mean, all that kind of stuff that just doesn't happen in everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait to get there. So anytime, what, uh, right. what kind of music or, or who are you listening to now? Okay. Well, I've been really interested in, in singer-songwriters of late, and uh, Gretchen Peters is a national writer that I've gotten to know quite well. She has an album that came out a couple months ago uh, called Dancing with the Beast that's just got killer songs on it. Uh, musically, you know, I, you know, we get in the rush we listen to, and sometimes it's hard to get blasted out. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a 12 year old daughter, and so it's easy for her to play. <laughs> right. yeah, you're going to get all the good new stuff. Right? Yeah, well, she just turned me on to Billie Eilish, you know. She, uh, I guess uh, Izzy went up to see Billie at the House of Blues up in Cleveland, and, and so I've, I haven't seen her live, but I've watched some videos. And, you know, it's, it's an odd thing, this whole sort of quasi, I don't even know what's quasi rap, I don't know what to call it, you know. But I liked it because I could sense truth and a really genuine artist in her and I like you know it's not the, not, not the stuff that I would go to sleep put on my headphones and go to sleep on uh, uh, riding on the bus Mary Chapin, Mary Chapin Carpenter does that for me right. but, but as far as the new artists I, I went wow this is pretty cool stuff so so Izzy is now she's sort of like in an alt alt world and uh, every now and then she turns me on to something I'm terrible about remembering names so I need to download it and put it in my iPod to remember it all right. So now with your story in print, uh, you know, what do you want people to take away? What is the essence of Yorma Kalkinen or what is the parable as Grace Slick writes? <laughs> yeah, Grace. That's our girl. Um, I guess I guess for me, uh, without attaching too much weight to it, I guess that redemption is always possible. You know, not that I, I think I've ever done something that was so bad that I needed to redeem myself or I'd go to hell or whatever, you know. But, you know, uh, I've had an interesting life. I've done a lot of stuff. And I like where I am now. So I guess uh, I, I guess the just the basic progress I've gone through. I mean, it's not like, you know, when you when you tell a story, if there's stuff that people found find downbeat, I go, listen. You know, there's it's not there's some things in the book. I mean, it isn't all uh, you know roses here. No, it's not. It's not. And and and, and all that being said, I mean, I pro- again, like you know, we're just talking about what you use. I probably just accepted that's the way it was at the time, you know. But at some time, you get ready to move on, and I got and I've been able to move on. That's a good thing, you know. And so I guess the ability to move on, maybe you know, uh, is important to me. 
if, if my kids can ever find the time to read the book, that's the message I'd like to give them. You know, it's always possible to move on. Although, I would point out to them, you, you don't need to get hit by a car to know it's going to hurt. Right. Right. Well, you're 77 years young, uh, still very active, playing with uh, Jack Cassidy as Hot Tuna. Yep. And, you know, you have the amazing Fur Piece Ranch uh, where you continue to uh, uh, perform. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're out on the road. Uh, you just keep on keeping on. So last question, because it was really interesting. Uh, and I just got to know the answer. Why in the book do you drop the letter O from the word God oh, whenever you oh, use it? All right. It's a Jewish thing. It's a Jewish thing. And it has something to do with, I forgot the real reason, you know, when, when my wife converted, you know, I was born Jewish, even though we weren't observant. So I should, there's a real reason for that, and I should have it. But Jews oftentimes don't do that because it's something like an icon or an image or something like that. I don't know. Oh, okay, okay. If I had to do it over again, I, I might not have done it. But that's but I started doing it. Once I started doing it, I couldn't stop. Yeah, because it's it runs through the book, and it was like it does. I'm, interesting. So listen, I ask. And I'm glad you did. But listen, there's something else too. You know, talk about stuff. You talk about the gearhead thing. Not only do I have a cool truck and a Jeep Wrangler Unlimited, but I still have a cool motorcycle too, and I can still hold the damn thing up. How good does it have to get? Right. Exactly, exactly. Yorma Kalkinen, it has been a blast talking with you today on Deeper Digs and Rock. Well, listen, man, thanks thanks for, you know, inviting me into your home. And if we want to get into these, you know, some of these, uh, the Marvel Omniverse and the like, I'm, I'm as we say down here, I'm ate up with that shit. Um, I probably spent a lot more time watching those things than I should. I really like them. <laughs> we will we will thanks for being with us absolutely thank you man We certainly were privileged to spend time with Yorma today. What an incredibly interesting rock and roller. Obviously, if you're a guitar player of whatever skill and have a free pass weekend, it seems pretty obvious that you should spend it at Yorma's guitar camp. Check out the Fur Peace Ranch. That's furpieceranch.com, folks. I think I'm going to add that to my bucket list. Pick up Been So Long, My Life and Music from Thomas Dunn Books at your favorite retailer. And most importantly, Hot Tuna and Yorma hit the road in August. Help, they are almost always on the road somewhere. So make sure you go and check out this fabulous guitarist when he comes to your town. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs and Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Hey, drop me a line sometime. And always keep up the rockin'. You hear? Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. 
If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.